What's up and welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I'm walking you through New York City today. We're going to, in about 20 minutes time, go through Times Square. We're going through Midtown, so you'll hear a lot of the Midtown noise. It's not crazy busy like it was three years ago, but it's definitely busier than 2020 and busier than 2021. And by the end of the episode, we might be at the base of Central Park. Going to talk about mediocrity, give you an update about a few things that we're doing at Sweathead, and then answer hopefully nine questions that people have kindly donated to me. First thing that I wanted to mention is that we've launched the conference that we're doing this year, the second version of it. It's called the Sweathead Do Together. It's happening on October 18 and 19. Online, 12 p.m. to 5 p.m. New York time, Eastern time. Day three, we have master classes, and I'm going to run you through the people who are hopefully going to be appearing. I mean, they've said yes, some of them have signed contracts and things, but also it's summer and a lot of people seem to be away right now. But we've got a really great lineup. We welcome back our wonderful hosts, Alexi Perez and Vanessa Toro. They're going to host us for the two days of the conference. It's great to see them join us again. Always love their energy. The third day we've got masterclasses going for about three hours and they're going to cover behavioral sciences. That'll be with Richard Shodden, who's pretty well known, especially in the UK, having written the book The Choice Factory, as well as Tom Roach, who is going to focus on marketing effectiveness, has written a ton of great blog posts over the years for various places, including BBH and where he works now, Jellyfish. Uh, And he's, he's going to run us through three hours of marketing effectiveness. And then we're also going to do a three-hour session on communications planning. And we're talking to uh, Christine Villanueva, who's the Chief Strategy Officer of UM, Universal McCann, or UM, in the U.S. Massive, massive. She and her team are in charge of a lot of people's money. So we're just speaking to Christine this week, but pretty sure that Christine's going to get involved, or hoping she will. The theme that we're focusing on for the two days before the masterclass, however, is called the fight against mediocrity. Uh, We've got a few people coming back and we've got a lot of of new people. Most of these people come either from the Sweathead community or from the podcast, usually people I know. With all the experiences that we create, we try to bring some students through, we try to make sure we've got some new voices, some established voices. Uh, we, We do think quite a lot about the principles. So for example, everyone's getting paid and everyone will get paid about the same amount of money, or they will get paid the same amount of money the same amount of money for the same work. You can read about all of that on the website at uh, www.thedotogether.com. But we're going to have some short videos to light a fire under you by Derek Walker. He did an exceptional talk last year. I think over 10,000 people have watched it on YouTube, and I might, I might actually post it to the podcast soon as well. So he'll be back. Rachel Mercer and Shan Biglione are friends. Sorry, Shan, I put a little extra <laughs> accent on the last part of your name, but hey, you're welcome. Uh, they're going to do something about mediocrity. They did a podcast episode about it recently on their podcast, The Overthinkers. Pilar McWhorter, is, who's been on the podcast, is going to do a talk as well. And, and Vicky Ross, who does a lot of great stuff, a lot of positive vibes from Vicky, especially to do with copywriting and interesting thinking. Then we have, and we'll probably announce a couple more people. We've got Alex Morris who did the artwork for the summer camp, the Sweathead Summer Camp. He's currently at Sid Lee. We've got Helena Blackwell rejoining us. She talked about stand-up comedy last year. She'll be focusing on a slightly different theme, slightly different theme, similar but slightly different. Nikita Walia, CEO of Blank, 
Esther Wang, Melly Hawk, recently appointed to CSO, right, of, of Edelman in the US. I used to work for Melly, although I had a, I was a boss, but I hate saying that. And I always joke about having worked for Melly, so it's awesome to see Melly um, get involved with us. She's super talented. RG Logan, who was at Carrot, I think, and then Vice, and now at the Truth Initiative. Santi Pochart, who I crossed paths with briefly when I was at Edelman. He's, he's now at Google. And then we also have some people focusing on trends. Haley Grant from Vayner, Matt Klein at Reddit, Usher Davis at Snap, James Watley, probably talking about gaming, did a controversial talk and set of social posts recently about the metaverse and gaming, but uh, James will be focusing on gaming. Mara Rigney, who I crossed paths with at Leo Bidet in New York, who's now at Accenture Song, and you can listen to her talk about the metaverse on the podcast a few episodes ago. She'll be doing something about the metaverse and then also trying to work out how to do a session with tom morton who's the head of strategy i think global head of strategy right now uh, for rga and don boyd from Cantar. both of these people have published points of view that connect to build on try to find nuance within byron sharp's work how brands grow and so we're current we're about to have a chat about how to structure a session based on people's holiday slash vacation times but it's going to be a really really fun day and you can get early bird tickets we've got about 50 of them well we have 50 of them and they're available till the end of august or until they go and you can find details at thedotogether.com we've also announced the next four-week accelerator strategy accelerator that's going to happen mid-october to mid-november you'll get uh, nine plus hours of live sessions as well as three hours of online videos just got them all renovated again i was watching them the other day it's really hard to watch yourself for that amount of time or even to listen to yourself for that amount of time but i did it i'm committed to the cause uh and there'll be assignments as well you can find details about that at sweathead.com finally big shout out to everyone who attended and spoke at the sweathead summer camp we had four sessions recently i won't name check everyone because i already feel like i'm talking a little bit too much before i get into the actual meat of what i wanted to get into it has been interesting. This summer's been interesting. Last summer was quiet. The, summer's, the summer of 2020 was actually kind of active. We had a lot of community interaction uh, and also things like podcast listens. They went crazy because I think people were just were traveling again and commuting again and got sick of being home. And then last year, 2021, went quiet. And this year has been quiet as well. Everybody seems to be away. Lucky you. Lucky you. Um, but it's, uh, we've had good attendance at the summer camp, but the engagement's been quiet. Everyone's a bit quiet right now. We've had 80 to 100 people at each session. Um, but I was hoping to see a little bit more boisterousness in the Slack group and, and online, but all good, all good. I, I think a lot of people are just in that mode of absorbing and watching, and I totally relate. Um, about two weeks out of a second bout of, well, I, I believe it's a second bout of COVID, and sometimes I get two or three hours into a day, and I'm just like, oh my God, my energy just completely fell off a cliff. What is wrong with me? So I am trying to walk again and get a little bit more active, but I uh, totally understand that sort of more voyeuristic spectator vibe. Totally fine. Totally fine. Um, fi- final thing before I get into sort of more useful stuff is probably going to be visiting Philadelphia, Chicago, Minneapolis to do training sessions in the next couple of months. Shout outs to the people and the companies, if you're listening, that I might meet there. Just putting that out there in case anybody else wants company training. We do it. All right. Let's talk about mediocrity. I'm trying to do some research into mediocrity. It is something that's been studied for a few decades, especially in the context of business. And I think because our conference is going to focus on the fight against mediocrity, 
just going past Penn Station. Crazy renovations going on right now. Uh, and it'll probably get noisier as well. That it's interesting to think about mediocrity as a habit. And as far as anything existing in any culture, you got to ask yourself, you know, why has why has this thing survived or in what environment, what situation, what dynamics does it survive? And so there is a piece of research that you can find online if you Google the culture of mediocrity by Joseph C. Bermanovich, uh, published in Minerva, a review of science, learning and policy. And I'm just going to read you from the abstract because I think just the abstract is actually quite telling for those of you who are in environments where you think you've been brought in to do really, really good work. And you get in there and you're like, oh, this system seems to be set up to do anything but. A lot of talk about process all the time and a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of politics, a lot of no. What is this? And you can feel gaslit and confused and wonder what you're doing in life. You can wonder whether you even belong in the industry anymore. And that can happen when you're 10, 20 years in, not just if you're a couple of years in, don't you worry. I know a lot of people who've gone through that in New York. You know, they feel they've done decent work at home, got a little cocky, and then they move countries, and they're like, oh, why isn't it working the same? Why isn't it working the same? So listen to this. Select groups and organizations embrace practices that perpetuate their inferiority. The result is the phenomenon we call mediocrity. All right? So what's interesting just about that is the language around groups embracing practices that lead to mediocrity and you got to ask yourself why just a direct quote from the abstract I'll continue mediocrity is maintained by a key social process the marginalization of the adept which is a response to the group problem of what to do with the highly able the problem arises when a majority of a group is comprised of average members who must decide what to do with high performers in the group to solve this problem, reward systems are subverted to benefit the less able and the adept are cast as deviant. Marginalization is a resolution of two tensions. Marginalization of the adept for their behavior and protection from the adept for the mediocre. I guarantee you there's a few people listening to this who feel relatively com competent and who objectively are competent, not just you think you're competent, but you're not, and you're also really confident, but generally speaking, competent. Uh, and I know there'd be a group of younger people who might have grown up on the internet and they feel, feel pretty fluent in various social platforms. And they get brought into a company where they're reporting into older people who've never used the social platforms and who maybe squash their ideas all the time. Now, anytime that happens, we, we do need to just pause a little bit and think, yeah, those ideas are getting squashed because they're not good. Because maybe they're not, right? Well, let's assume that there's some merit in them. What this research suggests is that you could get brought in to try to not be mediocre. That doesn't actually make sense, but you could get brought in to do what you think is going to be good work, but there can be a whole system set up to do two things. One is to look like it's embracing change without really embracing change. And two is eventually to tire you out so you leave and you don't have to change. Uh, remember, I was head of strategy of a multi, multi-hundred person company and people who'd been there for a long time, upon hearing there was a new agency positioning, rolled their eyes and were like, oh, we've waited all of these out before. It's weird, you know, I don't, I don't really get that, that's a sense of careerism and rust. The US does have different dynamics. 
uh, around career, traditionally or historically being connected to healthcare. Uh, and then the number of people who have college debt way into their 40s is actually quite high. So it's, there are dynamics here that until you've gone through them or been near them, it might be hard to really understand. But uh, anyway, just wanted to encourage you to explore the concept of mediocrity because it can be really confusing if you think you're okay but also if you've gone to a company to do really good work and you're like okay great I'm here now I want to do really good work how do we do it but everything seems to be set up to not do it despite what's said to you and yes that can feel like gaslighting all right now I've got nine questions we're about to come up to Times Square I'll probably lose my voice as I shout over the traffic and well, just hope you can hear me so the first question a lot of these are anonymous and thank you for asking them um, the first one really interests me and I think I've answered it or a version of it before it's from Tani and the question is what can I do when I feel a lack of interest because every project looks the same so obviously I talk a lot about defining the problem and you've housed what you think is the problem in the question which is that to you every project looks the same and that's why you feel a lack of interest now if that's true your answer is also in the question which is to try to make sure that every project doesn't look the same and I think the the two ways potentially to do that are one is to really connect to why you're even doing the work you do in the first place maybe it's to earn a salary so you can eat maybe it's to fulfill some deeper meaning it, it doesn't matter it doesn't have to always be a deeper meaning that you're striving towards it could just be to put food on the table but you got to keep that sense of purpose that sense of meaning front and center the second is to look at every project that comes in as a learning opportunity now it's easy for me to say because I know that you get 10 projects in on one client or into the year and, and you know good work doesn't seem to be happening you're like what is this and it can really get to you, right? But let's pretend that you're not at that point. Then the question back to you is like, how can you see every project differently? And one way to do that is through insisting that every single project is a way for you to learn something. Maybe the first project is a way for you to try a new uh, type of research. Maybe the second project is you're gonna present differently. You're gonna pitch without any presentation. And then the third one is, you know, you ask yourself the question, what can we do differently here? So that's where I would steer you. Easy to say now like this, hard when you're burnt out and maybe mul you know, multiple years into feeling burnt out, but that's where I would start. And on asked how to approach building a team for the first time. I think first place to start is to get a sense of the style of leader and the style of team that you want. So... I guess some sirens. Um, you know, come, it might come as no surprise, but uh, my style of leadership is is probably not that loud. Yet it's more of a coach type leader. Uh, the very opposite of that is someone who's very managerial, very operator-like, maybe low in empathy, hardened, task-oriented, and there's a whole spectrum in between. So, first of all, it's going to start with what's your style of leadership two is connect to or develop a philosophy for the team and or the company that you're in 
Now, if you think about, if you watch soccer, you're over in Europe, person who's asking this, if you think about soccer, obviously you can look at teams like Manchester City, very different philosophy uh, from Liverpool, for example, very different philosophy from, well, relatively different philosophy, Liverpool to Leeds, for example. Now, the, the point of a philosophy is that, not that it has to be some highfalutin answer of all existence and in infinity, but some kind of philosophy will help you understand what beliefs and behaviors drive you and therefore what the expectations you have of your team can be. And those things, I'll make that a little simpler in a second, those things will then help you structure your process and your templates and the way you give each other feedback. So you've got process, uh, templates, sorry, philosophy, process, templates, and feedback. Yeah, it'd be at least those four things. And those four things, at the very least, can combine as a mini operating system. Now, when it comes to philosophy, just think about all the different agencies in the world, and many of them have relatively clear philosophies. TBWA fo focuses on disruption. When you zig, we zag. And I believe that influences their templates still to this day. McCann talks about truth well told. That influences their templates with four, five, or even six Cs sometimes, depending on where you are in the world. Leah Burnett had, or maybe, I don't know if they still got this philosophy or work with it, but one called Humankind. And they had a way of rating the work, which they would do every few months with the regional creative leads on a scale of one to 10, one being destructive, 10 being change the world, I believe, which is very rare. They, they're not giving themselves 10 all the time. If you got eight, you'd get an eight ball. All right. So I, th I think you need to get those things in place. And then what you might like to do is give yourself one page to spend to identify for your team the problem that you're trying to solve for the company and the, the tactics, you're, the strategy slash tactics you're going to deploy for it. You know, I worked at a place where most of the clients knew this place as somewhere that did great websites. And our goal was to move from project-based based website design to more retainer, strategy-led projects. You know, so when I wrote this one-page document, I would put that at the top. And you know, the rest of the page would identify three to five tasks or goals, and then I would share that with then I shared that with the team. So there are some basic steps. I mean, building a team is way more complicated than that, working out what kind of people that you want. You, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. You're going to learn, hopefully, every time that you make a mistake. I would encourage you to keep a journal and reflect so that you know, maybe you hire someone who doesn't quite work out. Great. Well, you know what you're going to do differently next time. You'll probably overcompensate for some of the errors at some point, but that's just part of the development process. Okay. Kurt Jansen, this is a big question. That I, I don't know how to answer this. Why are we moving backwards as a country? Let's take it that you're in the USA. Um, from a noise reference point of view, I'm about a block from Bryant Park and a block from Times Square. Why are we moving backwards as a country? Yeah, I don't know. I... Uh, I think when you, <laughs> what am I going to say? Come on, you're going to try to trap me into saying something that I actually think. 
I, I think when you look around the US, you've got, you've got to wonder if what's happening right now is a feature or a bug, a feature or a flaw. And I think a lot of what's going on, you could say that the US is set up to do this. Okay? Set up to do this. It's, country, it's a country, um, the modern version of the country uh, was born from colonies that took things from local people, gave a middle finger to the things that existed back in Europe, and set about trying to enrich itself while keeping parts of the population down. So, <laughs> that's about all I'm going to get into there. Because so far it's been good to us. I mean, when <laughs> when I go out and when I'm out and about with family, you know, we worry, we worry about things. But uh, I I'm, I feel optimistic-ish, and I know that what I'm thankful for for being here is that there are things I can do here that'd be difficult to do anywhere else. So, you know, I'm not criticizing it, but. I don't know if it's moving backwards or if it is just being what it is. And you can take that how you want to take it. Um, I don't know. Don't mean that as criticism. Um, I don't know. <laughs> okay, West 44th Street. It's not too loud. It's not too loud. Uh, there's another question. I didn't write down your name. I'm sorry about that. Are the traditional strategy creative roles in agencies relevant in the fast-paced digital marketing era? So, traditional strategy creative roles. The traditional ones would be copywriter, art director, and account planner. You could throw in someone like a creative technologist or user experience, someone who can go deep into data and analytics, uh, various other sub-branches of researching the human condition but they're essentially the the kind of the main roles now i guess the question is are they relevant in the fast-paced digital marketing era yeah why not i think maybe the way they work could be different and sometimes some people with those responsibilities or those those roles are not equipped to really bring to life ideas in platforms that they've never used that's been an issue for well over a decade you know, but at the same time, the flip side of that is sometimes people who've grown up on the platforms don't really know how to be conceptual or strategic. So my short answer is yes, those roles still matter, but you're probably frustrated by two things. Process, the way those roles interact, and then culture. You know, it's not uncommon to see youngish people in those roles who are not experts at TikTok. Yet they're sort of trying to come up with ideas that you know have been done for five years or whatever it is. Not that you'd have ideas being done for five years on TikTok. So I can understand why that would frustrate you, but the, the roles definitely are useful. Yeah. Uh, Anon, does the agency world over-index with neuroatypical peeps, brackets, spectrum, sociopaths, etc.? I've not seen a lot of research into that in a way where I could say yes. Uh, there is a good book by Mihaly, Cheska Mihaly, called Creativity, which looks at the lives of lifetime creative people and some of, tries to kind of go into the myths, you know, do you have to be a manic genius to be creative, etc. And so I'd encourage you to read that book and any other books that are connected to it. 
there's some research about the big five personality traits in creativity. Creative people tend to be high in the, the O, openness, to be exceptional and be known in our work you need to be relatively conscientious, like pretty high in conscientiousness because you've got to get the work done. And I have seen a little piece of research that suggests that people who do creative work do over-index with E, extroversion. So we're looking at the big five personality traits here, O-C-E-A-N. Uh, and then the, some of the neuroatypicalness, neuro some of it would be represented in the N of neuro neuroticism is being prone to dark emotions. Now, we, we've run sessions with Sweathead on people with ADD and ADHD, and it was amazing because we had like maybe 40 people a year or two ago, who'd not, and most of, whom, most of whom had not spoken to people in the industry who had the same diagnosis. So that was really enlightening and beautiful. I'd, I'd say there would be, but I, my, my hunch is that there probably would be more neuroatypicality in this industry and you know what some addiction issues because that can be the shadow side for people who do creative work is the Im the impulsiveness and the exploration the need for variety and stimulation can lead to substance use and substance disorders i don't want to misspeak i'm not saying we all have drug problems or anything like that and if you do then my heart goes out to you anyway so it's not a judgment but yeah I'm, I, i'd expect the numbers would be higher with uh, different kinds of brains yeah relative to most industries but not all uh, there's a couple of questions that are similar actually a lot of these are anon i'm frustrated by how the person i report to hardly gives a shit about planning and knows less knows less than you I take it yeah that's really hard I don't know I don't I don't know why this happens I don't know why planning or strategy exists and then the people who run it aren't passionate it, it could just be because the department or group was introduced late and someone that the company trusted or who was seeking out power was just put in place that person might also be a good operator uh, as opposed to being a good planner and I, I don't know many good planners who are exceptional operators and one of my biggest jobs I got this weird backhanded it wasn't even backhanded it was like a weird muttered criticism on my way out that I wasn't a good operator and I'm like what are you first of all like oh, I've been a producer and a project manager I can manage projects okay but also if that's what you were looking for then you should have hired for that you know, because a head of planning is not going to be a COO or a CFO. Super different personality traits. Very different types of people, very different types of brains. So, yeah, look, if you're working with someone who doesn't, you don't think gives, like, cares, first of all, there could be stuff going on in their lives. They could be burnt out if they're older. Maybe they're going through a divorce. They got kids in private schools, they're up to their eyeballs in silly debt. So that could be going on. Second, Sometimes the management team dynamics could be really problematic. Maybe they started and they were really excited and then they just got beaten down by the dynamics of the management team. Or three, this is a new department and clients don't want what you're doing. And so they've got to work out how to turn up and you know, they think about whether they want to leave. There can be a whole bunch of other stuff going on. 
but if if not I think you hope hopefully you'd have I know it might be a little bit harder virtually but hopefully you hopefully you'll have a few colleagues that have some good energy for it I just encourage you to create the culture that you want create the culture that you want even if you're thinking about leaving in six 12 18 months because in trying to create it hopefully you'll feel a bit more sane and then it, there might be some energy that you can bring with you to the next place that you go El Tigre asks what's the value of strategy uh, I don't know a dollar I'm joking I mean the point of strategy is to well one of the points is to increase your odds of succeeding in the future and to hopefully minimize the waste time money resources as you move towards the future now if you need to develop a strategy for your own self-criticism because you are frequently dealing with high self-criticism or depression then the value of strategy for you to get to a plan that you can act and that might lead to a resolution it could be everything it could be life literally it's a tough question that one it's a question that needs additional questions for any answer to be useful two more connected to the one before this one anon how do you deal with a strategist above you who won't get out of your way? Okay, so it depends how toxic they are and if they're like abusive and cut you off all the time, don't let you speak, steal your work. I'd just get out of that type of situation if I could. And you've got to be careful because if you raise that issue, what I've seen and heard about with some of the younger folk is sometimes the company will want the really bad boss to go into counseling with a younger person for the a younger person essentially to help solve the older person I don't think that's okay I think you can manage boundaries there and go no no it's okay I'm going to prioritize my own needs my own mental health right now I don't need to do that for this person I don't owe them anything so that's the dynamic you got to be aware of just a few blocks away from Central Park just crossing West 52nd Street now, let's assume that they're kind of in your way out of habit, but that you feel the mood is neutral, so maybe okay. What I'd encourage you to do is to sit down and write down what you want to do and what you need from them, and then for you to stage, not stage, but to have a conversation where you express what you need. And it could be no more complicated than this. Dear boss, uh, I want to take more responsibility. You know, in our last review, if, you, if you're able to connect it to something you've already discussed, great. Or if you're able to connect it to a problem that is openly already discussed in the company or something to do with the company's goals, you say, look, in the last review, you said you wanted me to step up. I want to step up. So with the next three projects, I'm going to own them. And if you need a model to help you understand uh, let's call it personal responsibility on a project there's the RACI model R-A-C-I there's another version of that R-A-S-C-I R is responsible who's responsible ultimately responsible for the project A is who's accountable 
so they might not be leading it fully responsible but they're accountable C who's consulting and I who's informing the S in the R-A-S-C-I-S I believe is supporting yeah support so what you could do is state give it some kind of context boss based on what we talked about and me stepping up I found this way of articulating who's going to take what kind of responsibility for a project for the next three projects I want to be the R I'm going to be responsible and you're going to be the C you, maybe they have to be the A as well and you can say so what that means is here are the tasks that I'm going to take over and here's where I need you and you essentially do assertive account management on your own boss okay now, what that also means is that when you have interactions with them, you have to be very clear on what you need from them and how you're going to run them. So, for example, you could catch up for 30 minutes to say, okay, we've just done our, we've done our research and we've got a debrief. Over the next 30 minutes, I'm going to run you through a one-page synopsis, maybe five supporting charts, I don't know. And I want you to listen, and if you've got thoughts, I want you to take notes, and at the very end, I'm going to ask you for your feedback but I only want to hear three points from you. Okay, you wouldn't say I only want to hear three points from you. You'd say, but give it to me as three points or three questions, three problems for me to solve. Or you can say, I'm going to do the same thing, but on each slide, I'm going to stop. And I'm going to get, ask you for like one question or one thing that we need to improve. Okay, there's a, cert a certain assertiveness that you need to demonstrate to help that person help you. Okay, then final question. I have a feeling this, this kind of question will be on a lot of people's minds. It was asked to me through another platform. I'll, I'll go with it as a non, but the question is, do you know any good practices or exercises I could use to, quote-unquote, derive insights from data? All right, so for those of you who've got access to our classes or you've read my book, there's a whole section on data and the DIKW model, Data Information Knowledge Wisdom. Most of the time when we use the word data in this industry, I don't think we really know what we're saying because data is basically meaningless until you use it, at which point it becomes information. Now, the situation that I was given connected to this question was it's one thing to share data as in a statistic, and statistics are a kind of data, I guess. Yeah, they are. They're a kind of data. In the same way that the word blue is data and any conversation I have is data. But instead of going back in with insights as a statistic, there are at least two things to do here. One is to try to only use the word insight once, to use it meaningfully and in a way where hopefully the insight will be at the heart of the creative work. Two is to look at multiple pieces of data, st statistics, quotes from research and to try to assemble patterns from those pieces of data so that you know the example that I often give in my teaching about interviewing men about losing hair and a guy goes I don't feel accomplished enough to be bald that quote is a piece of data but then I might find research from an academic about how men feel about going bald we might run our own, on own online survey so there'd be supporting points but because then, I guess this is the third point, 
because I believe that insights are ideas, where insights and ideas combine topics in uncommon ways, they bring two topics together to create new meaning, then we're looking for an insight to give us some sort of reaction, not just be reporting what you've found, but for there to be some kind of leap that you can argue for. Alright, so that's my attempt to answer that question. And we are now at the base of Central Park, just crossing West 57th Street. I'm going to leave it there today. I hope the sound was okay. I was walking through one of the busier places of New York. Uh, if you'd like to find out about the Do Together, the conference, go to www.thedotogether.com. A four-week accelerator mid-October. You can find out about that at sweathead.com. And if you enjoy the episode, feel free to leave a kind rating or share it with someone. And uh, I'll see you next time. Peace. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sweathead. If it's your first time here, please subscribe. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend or leave a kind rating. For more information about our strategy classes, events, and books, visit www.sweathead.com. And yes, you can find us on Instagram at, at sweathead.